Well, this morning, if you have a Bible nearby, I invite you to open it up or turn it on or whatever you're doing these days for your Bible, but I would love for you to look with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. We are continuing in our series on the I Am Statements of Jesus. We've called it Jesus in His Own Words, and I invite your attention there to John, chapter 11. As you're turning there, can I just take a real quick point of personal privilege and say, I am glad to be back. I am so thankful. Some of you say you were gone. You didn't know. Well, I'm glad to be back in the pulpit. I was in revival this past week uh, at Bethel Baptist Church in uh, Poplarville, Mississippi. And it's actually a misnomer to say it's in Poplarville. Some of our members went to a revival service uh, one night this week. And they said, when we got to Poplarville, we realized we had 17 more miles to go. It's actually at Crossroads. It's almost to Bogalusa. I mean, those folks at Bethel drive toward town to hunt. I'm, I mean, it's out in the woods, all right? But it was a great, great time uh, there with them in revival. And I just want to say a quick word of thanks to Brother Jimmy Hill. What a blessing he was last week to speak a powerful word on Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And for Scott Alexander to handle uh, Wednesdays and some of the day-to-day activities I was in much of the week. But I'm grateful for our staff and for others that were part. But I missed you. Missed being here in this place. Missed this series together, and uh, we want to continue in the series. Now, we've been tracing through these seven I am statements. There's actually a couple of others that are not formally recognized. They're a little bit different form, and we're going to get to them a little later in our time together. We're going to focus on them on Christmas Eve, the last two. So if you're keeping score, we're on number six. There are traditionally seven statements, and so, Pastor, you're telling me this is the last of our series. It's the last for now, but in our Christmas series that we begin next week, we will insert the final I Am statements of Jesus in our Christmas Eve service. Let me put these on the screen for you. I just want you to see where we've been. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then we're going to look at one of the statements today. And again, we're going to deal with the very last ones on Christmas Eve. Now, I want you to think with me about these. We've come far enough in this series that we see a pattern. And a unique pattern has developed. In fact, John sort of encapsulates it in his writings where he intertwines action and teaching. Jesus makes one of these statements, and each time he does, there's a corresponding context that gives to us a miracle. Generally, not all of them, but it's either the context or some activity of Jesus uh, illustrates and backs up the statement. Let me illustrate that for you and help you begin to see it. Think back with me. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Who did he speak that to? This is the exact same crowd that he had just the day before fed on the mountainside. Jesus gave thanks, broke the bread, and distributed the fish, and he fed over 5,000 there on the mountainside. And they came back the next day, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What an incredible, miraculous picture. 
When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he said it right in the middle of the festival of lights. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the temple would be lit up each night, and he comes to them and he says, I am the light of the world. Interestingly, he said that in John chapter 8, and in John chapter 9, he meets a man that had been blind since birth. A man who had been in darkness all of his life, and Jesus heals him and brings to him sight. I think it's significant for us to see that Jesus incorporates a miracle or a context that backs up what he's saying. Don't lose sight of this. Each of these statements really correspond back to the covenant name of God. Every time Jesus was saying, I am, it was exactly as God had said through the burning bush to Moses. I am. I am with you. I not, not I was, not I will be, but I am eternally existent. So with each statement, Jesus gives a teaching and then illustrates it by an action or the context. So today, uh, our I am statement may be the most vivid yet, and the miracle that accompanies it may be one of the most powerful that we see up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus himself. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, and I want to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the word if you're physically able. Let's stand together. John 11, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. May we pray together. Father, would you add understanding and blessing to the reading and studying of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I have to tell you, there is so much to this one chapter of Scripture to unfold. There, there are multi-layers of amazing things here. I could spend literally weeks unpacking this story and talking to you about all that happens along the way as Jesus is called to Lazarus's bedside, but he shows up at his graveside. Now, I put in your notes a very simple quote. There's no instruction on how to do a funeral in the New Testament. And the reason why is because every time Jesus showed up at a funeral, he raised the dead. 
We see it with the son of the widow at Nain. We see it with Jairus' daughter. And here we see uh, Lazarus resurrected from the dead, raised from the dead after four days. Now, the story is intriguing. And again, I wish we had time to walk through it. Word comes to Jesus. If you were to read the whole uh, chapter, word comes to Jesus. His friend that he dearly loved was sick. And Jesus lingered where he was two more days. In fact, look with me at verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That seems like a mistake in the Bible. I mean, Jesus loved them, verse 5. And verse 6 should start with, and he came as quickly as he could. Or, but he stayed where he was. He loved them, but he couldn't get there. He loved them, but he was delayed. He loved them, but, but there's just no way that he could be there right now. No, it says he loved them. Say that word with me. So. Say that word with me. So. What did, so when he heard he was ill, what did he do? He stayed. That doesn't make sense, Jesus. You've heard that he's sick. Go heal him. You've heard that he's sick. They need you. You've heard that he's sick. Go to him. No. He heard that he was ill, so he stayed. Why? Because he loved them. It's interesting. You begin to start picking up on something. There's something deeper going on here. Look at verse 14 with me. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. It's interesting. Jesus tells the disciples that he is uh, going to go back to Bethany soon, but he's not going now. They said, he's sick. You need to go. And he said, this sickness will not end in death. That's just a few verses before what I just read. Wait a minute. Jesus is saying in about verse 7, verse 8, this sickness will not end in death. In verse 14, he says, Lazarus is dead. Because he knew something that you and I don't know. He knows something that the disciples surely didn't know. Jesus was about to make the most powerful claim yet in this I am statement and perform the most dynamic miracle yet. We'll come back to the story, but I want to bring it to us today where we are. Let me ask you a very pointed question. It's really the exact same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you really believe that you're going to live forever? Do you believe that you're going to live forever? Not hope, not wish. Do you believe that you will live forever? If you really believe that, that belief can and will profoundly impact every aspect of your life. If you believe that you're going to live forever. See, once you understand and believe that you're going to live forever, that this is not the only world. That this is not the only life. That this is not the only body that you'll have. That you will one day live in a perfect world with an eternally meaningful life in a, protect, a per, perfected, resurrected body without fear, without loneliness, without doubt, and without pain. If you truly believe that, here's what begins to happen. My limitations are tolerated. 
They, I, I can live with some of the aches and the pains of my life if I realize that this life is not all there is. If there's more to this life than this life, then all of the limitations of my physical being and all the limitations of my thinking are tolerable. My fears and my anxieties are crushed. They're vanquished when I recognize that this life is not all there is. I am no longer and you are no longer a prisoner to what other people think about you. When I recognize that I will live forever in that state that the Bible describes. Amen? Some of you have been bound captive by what other people think about you. And by the way, this is, again, part of what could be an entire series. What somebody else thinks about you is not your business. You realize that? That's their business. You let them worry about that, and you just worry about what God says about you. And if you'll live with character and with integrity, your reputation will speak for itself. Don't worry about what somebody else says or thinks about you. That's on them. They have to deal with it. But we are no longer prisoner. And here's my question. Pastor, is what you're saying just a wishful fantasy, or is it based in some reality? Is there a possibility that we can live forever? Is there a possibility that there's life beyond death? That there's life beyond this life? The world says one thing, but our Lord says another. Now, if there was a poster child in modern day life, in our lifetime for hedonism, just going after all the pleasure you can get, it would probably be a man like Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner went to the grave not long ago. He was the, the founder of and editor of Playboy magazine and the Playboy empire and lived a hedonistic lifestyle. But he was asked by a very prominent, famous interviewer this question. What do you think will happen to us after we die? And listen to Hugh Hefner's answer. I have no clue. And he went on to say, and I am struck by anyone who says that they have a clue. And here's why. It is perfectly obvious, plain, and clear to me that religion is a myth. We have invented it to explain the unexplainable, to account for the inexplicable. My religion, this is Hefner speaking, my religious side of life, my spiritual side, comes from a sense of connection to other human beings, to nature, to the planet, and to the universe. He went on to say, I am overwhelmingly in awe of all of it. It is so complex. So if it does have any meaning at all, we can't know what it is. I think anyone who says they have the answer is motivated by the need to invent answers because I know we have no answers. What an arrogant statement. He says boldly, I know the truth of life beyond life. And I don't have a clue. I mean, it's almost paradoxical that he would say it. Boldly assert, if you believe that you've got some answer to life after death, then you're clueless because I know that. Well, what do you know happens? I don't know. I mean, can you see the arrogance dripping from that statement? The, the sad reality of that is this. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, we have to take it at its, his word and take it at face value that he understands the end from the beginning. Or we, like Hefner, just make up our own sense of meaning, purpose, and focus. Now, let's get a little more context as we ask this question. What is Jesus' I am statement? I am the resurrection and the life, have to do with you and with me. Let's go back to the, the story. Lazarus and Martha and Mary live in a little town called Bethany. And that's important for you to know. 
If you look at the city of Jerusalem, the temple is up on the Temple Mount. The beautiful picture of the temple on the eastern side, the eastern gate is there. And down from the temple is the Kidron Valley. It's beautiful. You wind your way down and you come to the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of the Mount of Olives. And then the Mount of Olives rises back over on an opposing hillside. So you have Jerusalem and you have the valley, you have the Mount of Olives, and just over the ridge of the Mount of Olives is this little town called Bethany. It's only about two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. Very, very close. In fact, most of you drove further than the distance from Bethany to Jerusalem just to be at church here this morning. And the reason that that's important is because we back up to some conversations that happen in this story, and we see that being that close to Jerusalem is a big deal. Back up one verse, verse 16, just before the verses that we began to read, and Thomas says before they travel to the town of Bethany something pretty interesting. He recognized that before they had gone into that area and they were at a very serious place. Look at verse 14, 15, 16. We'll read them together. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. And Thomas, who is nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. What in the world is he talking about? By the way, we give Thomas a pretty bad rap. We call him, what, what do we nickname Thomas? Doubting Thomas. He wanted to see Jesus' hands and his feet and his side. But this doesn't sound like he is doubting at all. He says, well, if Jesus is going to take us back there and we're going to die, let's go and die with him. That sounds pretty bold to me. Thomas is saying, we're going to go wherever Jesus goes. But the, the reason that this is significant is because Jesus has been in the city of Jerusalem at least two occasions before this where they tried to grab him and kill him. They wanted to stone him. They were so enraged with Jesus that they tried to kill him and he slipped right through the crowd. Bethany is close enough to Jerusalem that if they go back, word is going to get there to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're going to say, we've got him now. He's only over the hill. Let's go grab him, and we'll stone him this time. He will not get away this time. And so Jesus says to the disciples, in relative safety, far away from Jerusalem, we're going to go back. Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, and let's go. And Thomas said, okay, let's go die with Jesus. Pretty depressing. Don't miss the setting. It's in the fear of death. They think they're going to die, and where are they going? To a funeral. Death is all around them. Lazarus is, say the word with me, dead. And we're going to go back, and we're going to die as well with Jesus. Death is the context. Jesus approaches the village. Martha comes out to greet him before he ever enters the town. That's pretty normal. And the reason it is, she's assumed to be the older, and so she would go out as the hostess. And so Mary stays in the house. There's not a, a crowd gathered out there. They're at the home helping to mourn, and they're right outside town. And it gives us this setting. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And look at how she answers with faith, yet again in the text. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha responds in faith. But it's first with a sense of indignancy. She says, Jesus, I can almost see her pointing her finger. If you had been here, 
My brother would not be dead. She had faith that Jesus could heal. She had faith that Jesus could touch. She'd seen him do that. And when he got word, we sent word as fast as we could. I'm, I'm sort of filling in the narrative, but can you see her saying, we sent word, where were you? We sent word to you days ago. And verse 6 says, he heard, he loved her, he loved them, so he stayed. Because he is leading towards something bigger. I know he'll rise again one day. She's looking forward, thinking forward to the future. She believed in the power of God. She doesn't grasp the immediacy of what Jesus is about to teach her and what he's saying. We know that Jesus is pointing forward too, but not to the last day, but to his day of resurrection. He is pointing forward with glee in his heart, knowing that he would soon return to heaven, that he would taste death for us, but he would be raised again to life. And he uses Lazarus' resurrection to demonstrate his own resurrection. And this is where Jesus gives the reply, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. He's introducing a new idea here. Resurrection is not just for the last day. He's about to unfold a piece of resurrection right here, right now before their eyes. He's breaking into their world and bringing them the assurance that resurrection is for both now and forever. Now, as we think about this, it has immediate implication for us. It is so powerful because he's using this resurrection to point forward to his own, which will happen after the crucifixion. All resurrection is intended to point to this one event. All of the resurrections of the Old Testament, all of the emphasis that you see of someone being raised to life, Jesus is life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit of all those who have fallen asleep. He's the very first and the very best of the resurrection harvest. And Paul goes on to say, for as in Adam all die, so and Christ all will be raised. Now, the reason that that's important for us as we celebrate it on Easter is that it comes full circle and you begin to realize that there's more to this than just the fact that we do not have to taste death, that we'll get raised to heaven one day. No, that today God begins something miraculous. How many of you have an older computer? Anybody? Some of you are saying, yeah, like two months ago. I mean, I've had that thing for ages. I've got a computer in my study that is nine years old. It's almost a boat anchor, right? It, it is, but I love it. I've used it. I'm used to it. The keys are worn to my finger. I just love it. I've had it for a long, long time. Here's the process, though. I push the power button, and then I go away, and I make coffee. I may go to the hospital and make visits. I may do all kinds of other things. I may go to the gym and work out. No, I'm not going to do that. I, I may do other things. And then I come back, and by lunchtime, it's almost booted up, right? I can almost see the, the power. I turn the power on, I flip the switch, but it's not quite there. Maybe some of you have computers like that too. The power is on, but it's not quite reached the place where you can see the full functioning. On Easter Sunday morning, when Jesus rose from the grave, you need to understand that the power came on. And when the power switch had been flipped and the button had been pressed, the new creation and the final resurrection are booting up. 
There is coming a day that you will be raised whole and healthy, complete. There is coming a day that we will experience the joy of heaven. And all of the curse will be reversed and we will find ourselves in his presence. Gloriously raised, gloriously changed, gloriously alive. But we live between the times. We're sort of in the boot up period, if you will. Think about this. Paradise is in startup mode right now. It's, it's warming up. The redeemed recreation is already warming up and nothing can turn it off. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can shut it back down and keep it from happening. Resurrection is both now and forever. We are experiencing right now the beginning. The beginning of life. The beginning of resurrection. All of creation booting up and we live in between. Now, from Jesus' resurrection to the final resurrection, Jesus has powered on for us life. There's a part about this that we love. We love the fact that we're going to go to heaven one day. We love the fact that one day we will experience health and wholeness. There is coming a day that hopefully we will experience such great joy. Some of you say, you know what? I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to finally be at least decent at golf. And some of you are saying, you know what? My, my football team is going to win every single game every single time. And that will be heaven for me. Brother West is thinking that Auburn will win a football. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. That would be heaven for him. But we come to this place of seeing what God is emerging in our lives. And we need to recognize something deeper. There's a part about it that we hate. And here's the part that we hate. Everyone loves the idea of resurrection, but nobody likes the thought of dying to get there. Resurrection cannot take place unless death takes place first. Way to kill the mood, Pastor. We were doing good talking about heaven. We were good talking about Jesus being our resurrection and the life. Can't we just jumpstart directly ahead to that? Can't we skip forward to the glorious resurrection and skip the death part? I, I understand, but it, it makes sense in this context. We hate death. Death separates. Death hurts. Death brings grief and mourning. Death came into the world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. It was not a part of the good and perfect world that God originally created. But when man chose to rebel from God, we hate death. Why? Because we've seen the consequences of our sin. Now, keep that as the backdrop that we do not love death. We hate it. And yet we hold up resurrection and must accept the ugliness of death to get to that place. I want us to hear this. You've heard me say it over and over again. Death, biblically, equals separation. Death is nothing more, nothing less than separation. God is life. And when we are cut off from the source of life, we are now separated. We are dead. And in that separated state, we are hopeless and helpless. We cannot get back to him without external help. And for Jesus to say, I am that help. I am not just a resurrection. I don't make resurrection possible. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Now, as we consider this, he's bringing back what is lost. As we look at this beautiful conversation, I want you to see two quick things. One, Jesus gives a promise. And the promise is this in verse 25 and 26. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. 
Some of you are saying, hold on right there. Jesus lied. I've seen plenty of Christians die. I've been to the funeral home. I've been to the funeral of Christians. You've never seen a Christian die. Yes, I have, Pastor. No, you haven't. Not if we understand that Jesus is talking about spiritual separation from the Father forever. He's saying, yes, you'll taste earthly physical death. Your heart one day will stop beating. Your lungs will stop drawing breath. But you will never in Christ be separated from the life and the resurrection of God. Never, ever. The Bible says it in Romans this way. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Height, depth. Demons, angels, space, time, nothing. Nothing can separate us from him. And Paul there at Romans said, I am convinced of those things. And here's what the resurrection means for you and for me today, Hardy Street. When you put your faith in Jesus and you're born again, you cross over from death to life. Spiritual death to spiritual life. That's exactly what John said in John 5, 24. Truly I tell you, whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Jesus came to give us life and the Bible says to give it more abundantly. So what happened in the Lazarus family cemetery that day tells us that Jesus has power over death because he comes to the place where he calls him out, Lazarus, come forth. And he is resurrected. Really, we could say he's resuscitated from a physical sense. Lazarus would die again physically. But Jesus tasted death for us, separated. And in that payment on the cross, we understand that he was raised to life forever because he is life. And as we consider that notion that he is life, we begin to understand something powerful. He says, whoever believes in me shall never die. I don't know about you, but I placed my faith in Jesus when I was 18 years old, and I've never been the same since. God gave me a song in my heart and a spring in my step and a purpose to wake up in the morning and hope for tomorrow. He gave me hope of ultimate resurrection, but he gave me life today. Amen? Some of you act like you're saved and mad about it. And you need to get over that. We need to go back and sing that old children's song. If you're happy and you know it, your face will surely show it. If we've been given eternal life, then we as raised and resurrected need to see the promise of Jesus is real. Jesus said, your brother will live again. And he wasn't just talking about that final day. Now, this brings up one quick thing. In this incredible promise, we learn that God's timing is not always on our calendar. You ever felt that? Anybody ever struggled or been discouraged by God's delay? God didn't answer when you wanted or exactly how you wanted. And you began to see that you were defined in some way as seeing things as they are without any hope of changing. That really is a definition of discouragement. Discouragement is living in a place where you don't see any hope of things ever getting better. And sometimes we live there before God acts. But you need to know this, and you may want to scribble it down. God's delays are not denials. God is not saying no if he delays. He's just saying the timing is not yet right. Mary and Martha were both discouraged. Their brother was dying. They knew Jesus could heal him, and they knew he wasn't very far away. And I can just imagine Mary saying to Martha, Jesus will be here soon. 
I mean, can you see the conversations over those two days? Jesus is on his way. I know he is. We sent word. He loves Lazarus. He loves us. He'll be here. And he didn't show up. And we read the words of Jesus in verse 14, and they almost sound cruel if you're there in that day. He says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. We see a bigger picture. We know that he's going to call him out of the graveyard. But if you're in the middle of it, so folks, you need to hear this. There are times that God is working a deeper plan and a deeper purpose that you cannot see, you cannot understand, but you can trust him. When you can't find his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Recognize that God loves you and has a plan. He makes this great and glorious promise. Secondly, he not only gives us a promise, he gives us proof. (laughs) I love this. This validates the statement. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he walks into that graveyard and he tells him, roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out of that graveyard. Vance Havner, the old country preacher, said if he had not called Lazarus by name, that every dead man in that graveyard would have got up and walked. If he had just said, come forth, it would have been pandemonium and chaos because he called Lazarus by name and Lazarus is rising here from the dead. He is able to give life. Why? Because he is the life and because he is the resurrection. Now, our time is fleeting. But I want you to see this with me this morning. We celebrate two very distinct visual images that really show this point. Obviously, there was nothing you could imagine more visual than a dead man getting up out of the grave. But Jesus left for us two very beautiful pictures, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Every time we come to the waters of baptism, we see somebody dead, buried, raised. And every time we come to the Lord's table together, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that we proclaim his death until he comes again. So the inference there is we point to the sacrifice that brought us life because we know he's alive and he's coming again. Oh, Hardy Street, I wish that I had time to invest in the end of this chapter. One of the things they said when Lazarus comes stumbling out, you see, he's wrapped up. They didn't do any embalming. He'd been in the tomb for four days. The greatest fear they had was that his body had probably begun the process of decay and it would smell. There would be an odor. So they wrapped spices into all of these grave clothes. And Jesus told them to unbind him, set him loose from the grave clothes. You need to recognize this, and this may be the word that's for somebody here today. Some of you are still bound up in grave clothes, and Jesus has called you out of the grave. And some of you need to recognize that the the button has been pushed and resurrection has been powered up. You're not ultimately where you're going to be, but he's called you out of the grave, so put the grave clothes down. You need to be set free today and walk in the fullness of his life. That's why I think he said these together. Not only am I the resurrection, I am the life. And the life that we live, we live now by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, I don't want to be hasty. Some have asked, why why did we do this just a month ago and we're doing it again now and we'll do the Lord's Supper together at Christmas Eve? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us how often do it. It just says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Well, I think it's a pretty good thing for us to remember Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection and life. Amen? 
And so we come to the table together. If you did not on your way in receive these elements, would you just gently slip your hand up? We have men that are prepared to distribute them. Anyone still need elements? If you'll raise your hand high, we've kind of developed the process now and everybody understands and knows, so that's good. Now, if you'll take those elements, you'll see that the bread is on one side and the the juice is on the other, but we'll open up the bread together. Anyone else? We should have folks in the balcony as well. Anybody that needs them. All right. If you would open that up, Paul gave instructions to the Corinthian church, and he said on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he was sharing a Passover meal, and he took the bread, and he broke it, and he gave thanks for it. Interesting. He would thank God for the breaking of his own body because he said, this bread is my body given for you in the new covenant. And the picture was that his body broken for us would bring to us healing and life. And he said, inasmuch as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you'll do this in remembrance of me and proclaim my death until I come again. So together today, let's give thanks for the broken body of Jesus Christ, and then we'll partake together. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the sacrifice. And, oh, God, today we want to preach a sermon, each and every one of us, in the simple act of taking in this bread, symbolically recognizing that we feast upon Christ and we are united with him in communion because of his death. We have life, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Paul said that on that same night, Jesus took the cup. This was the, the cup uh, of the, the Passover. And as he took that, that cup, he offered it up in thanksgiving and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he said, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my father's house. It was the picture of a wedding. The couple that was betrothed would drink a cup of joy together and then they would celebrate knowing that one day there would be a glorious reunion as he came for his bride and they were wed and spent eternity together. And when he said those words, they would have envisioned that he's saying, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. And in fact, they probably heard him say that I'm, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place. That's exactly what a bridegroom would say to his bride. Honey, I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place at my father's house. And when I come back, I've made a room for us. And we will honeymoon there together. And we will feast there together. And we will experience the joy of life together. And that's what Jesus was saying. And he's saying to us today, I am the resurrection. And I am the life. The life is in the blood. And the blood of the covenant is represented in the cup. And he said, take and drink. And as often as you do, do this in remembrance of me. Church family, let me give you one word of instruction. Hold on to that cup for a moment. We're going to have our invitation. But on your way out, if you would help us, we are going to be um, decorating this afternoon. And it will help that our, our Lord's Supper committee if you would take these, we've got receptacles on the way out. And if you'll just throw your own away, that'd be great. I'm going to ask Brother West and our musicians to come. And as they come this morning, I just want to appeal to your heart. Maybe you recognize you're separated from God. Maybe when I asked that question, as Jesus asked the question of Martha, he said, do you believe this? Do you really believe that you'll live forever? You see, all of us will exist forever. The Bible says that God created us in His image, and that means that we are created with eternality 
in our lives. You'll live forever. The question is location, location, location. Where will you spend eternity? You'll either live in the presence of Jesus forever, who is the resurrection and the life, or you will be cast out of his presence and you will experience eternal wrath in a place called hell. It's not mean-spirited or cruel that God would judge in that way. It simply shows the nature of his holiness and the beauty of his grace. The miraculous good news of the gospel is not that people go to hell. It's that people don't have to because Jesus provided the way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the resurrection and the life. We're going to stand together. As we stand, we're going to sing through just very, very briefly. We're not going to be here lingering. But if the need of your life is to be saved, why don't you come forward? You just step out from where you are. People will let you out. We have encouragers. They're prayer partners that would love to take you by the hand and share with you how to be saved. If the need of your life is to unite with this church, you want to be a part of what God is doing here at Hardy Street, they can help you with that. They just want to talk to you about your salvation and your baptism. And so you come. They're here to help you. They want to love you. They'll pray with you. Um, we want to do that as we sing. So as soon as we begin singing, you step out.